0: Jesus, for our sake, you died. Jesus died. That was the truth that those who loved and followed him had to wrestle with that first Easter Sunday morning. With the events of Friday still fresh in their minds, and after an arduous and sorrow filled Sabbath day, Mary Magdalene and some of the other women go to the tomb to care for the body of Jesus, which is where we pick this story up in John chapter 20, verse 1. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, speaking of John, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. The other gospel accounts bring us some additional clarity on what this interaction would have been like. We know that the women, when they made their way to the tomb, were met by angels who told them explicitly, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here for he has risen. But it's interesting to note here that the only thing that John details the women said was they've taken his body and we don't know where it's gone. It's almost as if Peter and John had blinders up to only hear one thing. And the one thing that they heard struck their hearts with fear, anxiety, and panic. Assuming his body to be stolen and not truly understanding or believing what had actually happened or even remembering what Jesus had told them explicitly. Peter and John take off running to the tomb to see for themselves Verse four, both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. You can imagine in those moments as they are making a beeline to the tomb of Jesus, the thoughts running through their head, the panic and anxiety they felt as the body of their Lord was taken. They had not yet had the time to repair the body as they ought to. They hadn't had the time they needed to grieve. You can imagine the sting and the pain in the heart of Peter as John was the only one of the 12 who remained with Jesus to see his death through. The pain Peter must have felt at the abandoning and betraying of the Lord that he had done just a few days later, betraying the one he he called the Christ, the son of the living God. You can feel the desperation in every lunging step that john takes out running peter to the tomb his heart gripped with fear and disbelief as to what had happened verse 5 he makes it to the tomb first and stooping to look in bending down to see he saw the linen cloths lying there but he did not go in john's heart beating out of his chest his breaths heavy as he bends down to look into the tomb that once held his lord and friend to see the cloths that had wrapped around the lifeless body of his messiah lying there in a heap his body couldn't have been stolen john must have thought why would grave robbers leave expensive cloths frozen in place his mind racing John doesn't go in. Peter bursts onto the scene in verse six and in perfect proof of character bursts right in. He too looks to see the cloths, but he also sees verse seven, the face cloth, which had been on Jesus's head, not lying with the linen cloths, but fold up in a place by itself. Further confirmation that there's no way Jesus's body could have been stolen. Why would grave robbers or enemies take the time to fold up the cloth that once covered Jesus' face? Peter, taking all this in, tried to make sense of all that he saw. Verse 8, Then John, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. John sees, and he gets it. The only possible explanation could be that what the women had told them was actually true. But we have no indication of how Peter responds, other other than that in Luke's account, we read that Peter marvels as he goes away from the tomb. See, John believes based on what he sees in front of him, but both he and Peter don't fully understand the implications of this. They leave the... Tomb, verse 10, says, returning to their homes. I imagine, I wonder what that conversation would have been like as they walked back. Maybe they talked, maybe they speculated, maybe they just walked in silence, considering all that they had just seen. What does all this mean? What really happened here? Although we hear that John believed he and Peter both didn't, fully get it if you're here this morning and you really don't fully get it i hope this is comforting to you because you're in good company the truth would come forward soon enough and the truth of all of this would be so much greater than peter or john could have even imagined in this moment
1: But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. No one had ever understood Mary like Jesus. Not only had he miraculously healed her from a life of torment and suffering, but his compassion toward her was like nothing she had ever experienced. Her life began when they met, and she served him faithfully after that, out of sheer gratitude. She supported his ministry with everything that she had and then she watched her teacher, her advocate, her healer, her most cherished friend die the most horrific death. He had saved her life and she could do nothing to save his. When women are faced with difficult circumstances, our instincts kick in Don't they? We must do something. We have to keep busy. We need to numb the pain. We need to distract our thoughts. So Mary went home and prepared the spices that she would take back to the tomb to honor and anoint the body of her precious Jesus. And she had to observe the Sabbath after that. She could do nothing. Nothing but grieve and wait and be obedient and try to breathe and process, I can only imagine the countless whys that were torturing her mind. I understand the physical pain of loss and how it hurts like nothing I've ever experienced. I understand the sudden realization that nothing will ever be the same again. And when dawn came the next day, I'm sure Mary hit the ground running. It was still dark, but she knew her way to the tomb. She had watched Joseph lay her Jesus there. I'm sure it seemed like a dream to her. Still, actually a horrible nightmare. She arrived at the tomb, and she saw two angels in white, sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, woman, Why are you weeping? For real? I I can only imagine what was going through her mind. He's gone. There was panic and disbelief and anger. Where is my Jesus? She was crushed and broken. This was too much for her. And then she must have felt a presence. She turned around. She was still barely able to see through her tears and her pain. And she was asked again, woman, why are you weeping? Who are you seeking? You know, those times when the hurt is so deep that you just can't see what's right in front of you. When you are so blinded to the truth, when your emotions are so big that you can't see past them. Jesus is right there in that moment asking, why are you weeping? Who are you seeking? and Mary answers yet again without knowing who she's speaking to. But then he says her name. Mary! I can only imagine her heart stopped and the swirling ceased and all of her senses were sharp and she recognized his voice. Rabboni, teacher! Oh, the emotional roller coaster! I'm sure she was wide-eyed with disbelief and but also such a surge of elation. I love that Christ's next words are, do not cling to me. That tells me that Mary fell immediately to his feet and held on for dear life. There was no doubt in her mind that this was her Jesus. I'm sure she didn't want to let go of him physically. She knew the pain of their first separation. It was too fresh. But he had a mission for her. He... She was to go and tell, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and to your God. Isn't that awesome? That Mary received the first call, a woman? I love that Jesus did that. His words, his voice cut through her grief, her pain her suffering so that she could see clearly that he was with her. He had never left her, and he never would. He directed her steps. She obeyed him immediately. She didn't question him. I am quite sure that a big part of her just wanted to stay, just cling to him, to hold on tightly for fear of not ever having having him physically near her again. But she chose to obey to share the miraculous news that I have seen the Lord. That's our mission too. All of Mary's pain and suffering and fear and anger and anxiety are the same emotions that caused me to cry out, where are you Jesus? And there he was calling my name. And now I know his voice and I can say, I have seen the Lord.
2: Sometimes, something happens to completely shift our perspective and understanding. We call it a paradigm shift. It's when what we measure our interpretation of reality against is shifted. It's like waking up in the dark in a different room than we thought we were in. When we finally get the light on, we understand why nothing made sense and we banged into things. It happened on the road to Emmaus. Two of Jesus' followers, one named Cleopas, had decided to get out of the city. As they were walking and talking about everything that had happened, a stranger joined them. He asked them what they were talking about. They couldn't believe he didn't know what had been going on. Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened in these days? What things, he asked. What things indeed. The things they had seen. People healed. Religious systems that brutalized people and betrayed God challenged the scriptures explained, the kingdom of God promised, the poor lifted up and glad, and it all centered on one man, Jesus of Nazareth, a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. Why, a short time ago, he had healed a blind man. He had ridden into Jerusalem like a king. They were with him, shouting and praising God. And a week later, he was dead. The thing is, they said, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. We've all been there. I thought he was the one to save my marriage, to set me up financially, to help me overcome my addiction. We had hoped. Then this man introduced a change. He rebuked them for not listening to the prophets and then showed them from the scriptures that what happened was actually predicted. These things weren't random events with no meaning, no chaos ending in disappointment. This wasn't a crushing defeat. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into glory? Could it be? Could it be that our hopes are not empty? They reached the village, and he said he was going further, but they convinced him to stop as it was late, It's hard to follow a road in the dark. But they ran back to Jerusalem afterwards anyway. Why? Because the burning they felt in their hearts as he spoke to them on the road. It was when he took bread and broke it and blessed it. Right then, the shift happened. And so they ran.
3: In John chapter 20 verses 19 to 29, we read that Jesus appeared to his disciples, but the first time he showed up the disciple Thomas wasn't there, and this turned out to be really hard for Thomas. For all the time that he'd spent with Jesus, Thomas learned to be a follower, but he'd never learned to overcome his tendency towards doubt. He had trouble believing that good results could come through bad events. Let's say that Thomas loved Jesus and he saw all the things that Jesus had done, but he was a realist. So when he heard reports that Jesus was seen alive, it was gut-wrenching and confusing for him. How could he allow himself to believe and rejoice when this news was so hard to understand? I bet his emotions were all over the place and, and maybe that's why he wasn't there. He isolated himself, but when he chose to do that, He cut himself off from the people who who could best understand his disappointment and also they could best relate to his doubts. We can only speculate about what Thomas was really going through, but we do know what John tells us. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. For Thomas, not being there meant he could hold on to his disbelief and protect himself from the potential of disappointment in case they were mistaken. If we could access his thoughts, we might hear him reasoning and thinking to himself, maybe they saw somebody that looked like Jesus, but there's no way it could be him. Having Jesus back is just too much for me to handle right now, and I don't wanna let my hopes get that high. I think Thomas deeply missed his Messiah. Having been away from his small group of disciples, he missed his opportunity to be personally encouraged by the risen Lord. And now the pieces of his broken heart were barely held together by the shreds of his fragile faith. Thomas wanted, he almost needed tangible proof that the unbelievable had happened. Nothing more would settle his heart. All he could do with his doubt now was contradict their growing enthusiasm with good old fashioned protective logic. So he says, unless I see in his hands the mark of his nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Thomas was trying to fit together everything he knew about Easter without having seen the risen Lord. And in this moment that we read about him, we understand he's like us. He has real doubts. Thomas is remembered for his doubting, but I kind of wish he was also remembered for his deep despair. He was gripped by despair so dark, he lost his faith in the possibility that something wonderful was happening to him right now. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been in that place? In this moment, he shares his heart with his friends and admits he has real doubts. We can likely appreciate the raw honesty of Thomas's words that we read for him at this very confusing time. Thomas's transparency here reminds us of two things. Doubt is not the ideal response in a disciple's life, but doubt is a real response that disciples struggle to overcome on their way to hope. And perhaps that's where you're at today, and maybe that's why you're here today in a confusing moment Wondering what can be done to help you overcome your struggle with doubt on your way to hope. It's not easy, but you can take a step towards hope right now. Just admit what you think you need and wait to see what Jesus will do.
4: Well, as we saw in each of these responses, that first Sunday morning was characterized more by confusion and brokenness, disappointment, and doubt. It wasn't characterized, as has come to be our tradition, it wasn't characterized by confetti cannons and you know, exuberant singing and a very confident presentation of the gospel. It wasn't accompanied by, you know, the yay, the excitement and the anticipation and expectation that we have with our perspective on it all. That first Sunday morning scene was far more somber, reflective, gut-wrenching, really. But what we see in each of the four responses to the resurrection that we looked at, all of that gives us permission, it gives us space, in in in, to be really space to be in the same place that each one of those people were on that very first Sunday. And like each of them to take an initial first step toward believing. And it doesn't really matter where our starting point is and whoever's watching this, listening to this message right now, whatever your starting point is with respect to the faith, that starting point is going to work. As we saw in each of the examples that we just looked at. So first of all, we looked at Peter and John. And understand that from Peter and John's uh, perspective, they, they make this epic sprint to the tomb. And we learned that God will clear my confusion. Maybe that's you when it comes to understanding matters of the faith. That you just find it all so confusing. And it isn't wrong to step back and say, I want to believe, and then to be hesitant because it all seems so confusing to you. After all, someone rising from the dead, which is the core of what we believe as Christians, if we do not believe that there is a resurrection from the dead, then there is no Christianity. And anyone who's peddling a Christianity that doesn't believe in the visible bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ isn't peddling actual Christianity, but some 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 impoverished imitation of christianity so we acknowledge someone rising from the dead is indeed a supernatural event that is to say it is not natural that is to say it assaults my senses whenever i think about it 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 hurts my brain to think about resurrection from the dead my my eyes if i had been a witness my eyes would claim that I didn't actually see it happen. I couldn't have seen that because it's not possible. And I looked for a rational explanation as to why that actually happened. And, and for some, that's a huge hurdle because they're such rational people. M- there are many people in life, and I'm, I would be one of them. I, I don't mind a little mystery in life, but for others, you need to lock down every single detail. You need to know all the facts. And as much as Jesus had told his disciples, and he had on multiple occasions told them, this is what has to happen, I need to suffer, I need to be turned over to the religious leaders, I'm going to die, and and then I'm going to be resurrected again, I'm going to come back to life. He had told them that in those almost exact words, that explicitly. And even though he had told them all of that, they didn't get it. They couldn't comprehend it. They were confused by it. And when it did happen, it spun them out. And so if you would say, I want to believe, because I believe those first followers of Christ wanted to believe, but you have confusion about Jesus, about the gospel, about faith, if you have confusion about the church and how it all fits together and you know what the Bible says about all of these things, if you have that confusion, just as Peter and John had that confusion, then I would say to you, do the exact same thing that Peter and John did. Run! the tomb and look inside because Peter and John wanted to believe they wanted it to be true and they acted however awkwardly on what became clearer and clearer to them as time progressed and and later on Peter would have this one-on-one conversation with Jesus where Jesus is Restoring him because of what had happened with the denial, the three denials. And in the course of that conversation, even though Peter and John knew they didn't know everything, Peter makes this astounding claim where he says, you know everything, Lord. And I, I wonder, for those who are confused, if that could be enough for now, if that could be enough as a starting point to just acknowledge that God knows everything. God knows everything. Could you trust him to roll out more over time as you walk with him? In other words, could you take on this basis an initial step of faith? And then looking into the tomb, investigate it and research it and study it and wonder about it and ask questions. And as you do that, grow more and more in faith along the way. Well, maybe that's it. Maybe it's confusion. Uh, maybe it's something different that's holding you back. And what needs to happen is this that God will heal my brokenness. And we have made this idea of brokenness, of heartache, of pain, of trial. We've made that a regular practice in our preaching because it's a regular part and a major theme of the scriptures. And beyond that, that really describes what our lives are really like. Job said, people are born to trouble. Jesus is described by the prophet as a man of sorrows and one who is acquainted with Grief. Jesus wept at his friend Lazarus's tomb when he had died. Jesus wept just days before the events of Good Friday and Easter. Jesus wept entering the city of J- Jerusalem knowing how spiritually impoverished they were and how they would treat him. Grief, brokenness, sorrow, anguish, they're all okay. They're part of the human condition in a world that is tainted by sin but we needn't stay in that sorrow we don't have to stay in that place of brokenness we don't have to stay gripped and some people do this gripped and consumed by grief i mean i get that some are so afflicted by life's circumstances i get that there's relational heartache and physical pain that people go through and that there's mental um, anguish and there's financial pressures. I get all of that and, and a hundred other things that can happen to us. And I get that some people can blame God for all of that. Or they could say, you know what, God is just so distant and cold or God is powerless to actually help me or God is uncaring about my plight. And yet, for God's own reasons, the only reasons that he really knows, he let those who were closest to Jesus suffer the most. And Mary's heartbreak is, is maybe the most profound example of that. And, and when you read the story, it's kind of hard to watch her go through this. I mean, none of us really, from our perspective, could imagine what this was like. For three years, these followers of Jesus had committed their life and followed him like they had left their previous life and followed him around 24-7, listened to his teachings, seen the miracles, and and had their lives profoundly changed by Jesus. They had this face-to-face relationship with the Savior. They knew how he had lifted them from the trauma of their own lives, and then they watched as he was taken from them in the most horrific way. No one to defend him. The powerlessness of of that, when you really think about it, the powerlessness of that would be crushing. But the reality is Jesus looked past the cross. Jesus looked through the pain and through the sorrow and through the anxious. He looked past the devastation of it all. And Mary did too. And in that encounter with Jesus at the tomb, when she finally, she hasn't recognized him yet, but when he finally says her name, isn't that interesting? When he says her name, the grief melted away. The brokenness was erased. And she knew who she was talking to. And and then Jesus gave her this, this task as the first missionary, the first evangelist to go and tell the others that he was alive because she was the first to believe. And she told them and she cut through all the heartache and she said this, I have seen the Lord. I have seen the Lord. Now consider this. That your sorrows, your brokenness is meant to push you toward God, not away from him. To push you toward the empty tomb, not away from it. That's what Mary tells us. And then this one. God will also overcome my disappointment. I mean, these two disciples that are on the road to Emmaus that night, Sunday night, they were so disappointed at everything that had happened that they just they just cashed out. They packed their bags. They left town. They were done with it all. Life had dealt them such a blow that they were, in fact, entirely defeated. Now... I would say that disappointment with how life is turning out is pretty widespread today. I mean, marriages, spouses disappointed with each other. We have parental disappointment in, in the decisions that their adult kids make. We have adult kids who are disappointed with how their parents raise them. We have career disappointment, we have educational disappointments, we have disappointments with our friends, disappointment, of course, with government, disappointment with church leaders, with churches, and of course, so much disappointment with God. And I wonder if that last one is really the number one reason why people walk away from the church, why they walk away from their faith. They're disappointed with God. Well, back to these two disciples. In in this moment where they sat down with him, remember, they were just walking along the way and this stranger came up to them and they carried on a conversation as they walked toward the next town. And then they decided to to stay together for the evening and and they had a meal together and they um, ate bread. And and when the bread was broken, the stranger would come along on the trip. All of a sudden was revealed to them as being Jesus. They recognized him. And and, and you think about that. In that moment, finally it all made sense to them. The conversation on the road, the things that he was saying, and even the way he was saying it, the cadence of his voice, it all, all of a sudden, made sense. And they said, did not our hearts burn within us while he spoke? And the fact is for us, like these two disciples, if we keep our eyes on the things around us, if, if we only react to the things that we see, then we'll never see Jesus. So let's get it on the table. Let's acknowledge some things that we know to be true. People disappoint. Life rarely turns out the way that we uh, wanted it to or expected it it would. Let's let's establish also that God probably won't do things the way you want him to do those things. And if we would accept all of that, if we would have that as the basis for an understanding, and then add in the thought that when we do experience goodness and blessing, that that is a grace gift from God, that we did not deserve it or earn it. And if we can look past everything that's going on in our lives, all the circumstances, all the things that we can see, and instead, as the preacher in Hebrews said, instead fix our eyes on Jesus, then our hearts will burn within us too whenever he speaks to us. And life will never be disappointing. We'll take each circumstance as it comes, but nothing will ever be disappointing to us. And in fact, just like those two disciples, as soon as we get this, we'll book it back to Jerusalem as well. Back to, back to be with God's people. Back to be with God as the events are unfolding. All right. One more. Finally, God will answer my doubts. Well, this is Thomas. Thomas had the most questions. Thomas had the deepest doubt. Thomas needed, for sure, the most convincing. But Thomas also made the boldest and most direct declaration of the deity of Christ once he realized the truth. He said, very simply, my Lord and my God. And maybe that's the way it always is. That the person who struggles the most to get there, the person who struggles the most to believe in God, appreciates it more, gets it more, than someone whose path maybe was a little, I'll just say it this way, was a little easier. So doubt isn't a bad thing. Jesus doesn't treat it as a bad thing. In fact, Jesus was so gracious and so kind with Thomas, he patiently led him to an understanding of who he is. He accommodated himself to Thomas's questions and his need to know and to see and to experience and to put his hands in the wounds. Not everyone needs that, of course. We're not all fashioned the same in that way, but many do. I mean, we live at a time when the gospel and Christianity, especially in the Western world, has been shoved to the side because as we are told, it is, Christianity is anti-intellectual and it's anti-science. It's for the irrational person, it's for the ignorant. It is as the, you know, from another era, as the Communist Manifesto said, Marx said this, that religion is the opiate of the masses. But it's certainly not something for the powerful. It's not something for the sophisticated. It's not something for the educated. And yet here's Thomas, obviously a smart man, obviously asking really hard questions. Here's Thomas getting it, believing it, surrendering his life to it. It is for everyone. It's it's for the skeptic, it's for the doubter, it's for the intellectual and the inquisitive person. The, The depths of God cannot be mined completely. The magnitude of his greatness and his glory are unfathomable. He said through the prophet Isaiah, My thoughts are not your thoughts. Nor are my ways your ways. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. How could we presume as human beings to know the mind of the creator of God? God is transcendent. In other words, God is other. He's different than us. So, so bring your doubts come to Jesus, and then spend a lifetime exploring who he is. And he will patiently, over time, answer all your doubts. So that's the four responses to the resurrection. Let me finish this off with with this thought. The Apostle Paul, many years after the events of Good Friday and Easter Sunday, he said that his desire, this was in the letter to the Philippians, uh, chapter three, verse 10. He said that I might know him and the power of his resurrection, that I may know Christ and the power of his resurrection, that resurrection power that takes us from dead in sin, dead before God, dead spiritually, and lifts us, the pow- by the power of the resurrection, lifts us to new life in Christ, the rebirth, the new life in him. And so for those of us who believe and are listening to this message right now and taking part in this service, for those of us who believe the resurrection for us is fact and we are in fact seeing over the course of our lifetime an ongoing transformation of who we are into the image of Jesus Christ, really appropriating more and more the life of Jesus Christ or seeing, to state it the way Paul did, seeing the power of the resurrection applied to our lives day by day, transforming us. But for the first Sunday morning, the first Easter Sunday morning group, who were witnesses to the resurrection, they weren't so convinced when they woke up that morning. Again, confusion, brokenness, disappointment, and doubt gripped them. But they came nonetheless and when we enter into that first Easter Sunday to see it through the eyes of Mary Magdalene and and Thomas and the two disciples on the road to Emmaus and Peter and John we see something very human and God meets us right there right where we are and and leads us to take just the smallest step forward into faith with Jesus Christ, to know him for ourselves, to know in our own lives, the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I invite you to take that first step of faith or to take another step of faith, wherever you're at in the journey continue on with Christ, continue pressing in to know him more, that we all might know him and the power of his resurrection. Let me pray for us. Father, you did something um, awesome that day, and you're uh, continuing to do that awesome thing. And I pray that you would apply this resurrection power to our lives right now. God, I pray that you would apply it to all who are hearing this word. God, that you would overcome any obstacles to faith. God, overcome our fear and apprehension, break through our resistance and our hurts. Help us all to see Jesus and to receive the new life that he has for us through his Holy Spirit. And God, we pray all of this in his powerful name. Amen. Amen.